financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And a longtime F, but his first time appearance on the show. I've known him through social media for years and years. He's a Bills super fan uh, coming to us from Long Island in his man cave. We're going to get into some of those jerseys back there a little bit later. Um, because it looks like you could be in a Dick Sporting Goods <laughs> or a Champs or something like that. There's a retail feel to all those jerseys hanging back there. Joe Lazito joining us. Joe, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim and Jonah. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I'm really happy to to actually talk to you guys one-on-one, uh, -on -one, well, two-on-one -on -one here. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the show, and I listen to every episode, and it's an honor to be a part of it. Well, it's a long time coming, and we've been talking about this for a bit, and we were supposed to meet when the Jets visited the Bills uh, last season, and the Deluge kept that from happening. Uh, I'm too much of a pussy to leave the press box. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it, it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't good enough for me. We're going to get into uh, one of Joe's experiences, which has marked his life. You know, no, no pun, it's marked his face. Um, but, uh, it, it's a little bit tougher to deal with in rainfall. Uh, so that's why I'm readily admitting here, uh, uh, that, uh, that Joe, uh, is a man's man. And I saw it on a website. I, I don't have it handy right now, but you were named at one point badass of the week, uh, by a website. Uh, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> and, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But let's explain why Joe Lazito, 51-year-old Joe Lazito from Long Island, is a badass. Um, he wrote a book in 2014 called The New York Subway Hero, My Battle with Evil and a Spree Killer. And it is exactly what the title just indicated. Uh, back in 2011, Joe Lazito was a passenger on a New York subway train. Uh, headed towards Times Square on his way to his job where he worked the box office at Lincoln Center. And that is where he encountered Maxim Gelman, who unbeknownst to Joe at the time was in the midst of a 28 hour stabbing spree, killing spree, because one of his uh, one of the murders he committed was via a car, a hit and run. Uh, and this took place in Brooklyn. And in Manhattan, he killed four people. He wounded five others with Joe Lazito being the last of the five. And thankfully for a lot of people in a crowded subway train or on the platform, he did encounter Joe Lazito because Joe Lazito took him down for the police who were standing by and watching. And we're going to get into that in a little bit. But uh, this is a story that uh, 
was covered quite extensively by the New York City media uh, in 2011 and through uh, a lawsuit against the New York uh, Police Department in 2013. But I just want to give a little more background before we let Joe talk, so that way Joe doesn't have to get into the minutia of the details. Uh, Maxim Gelman, uh, he was a Ukrainian immigrant, but a U.S. citizen. He went to schools in New York City, uh, middle school, high school, et cetera, uh, became a U.S. citizen in 2005, and obviously uh, mentally unstable. And uh, he started off his uh, spree uh, by stabbing his stepfather to death. Uh, in the home uh, right there in front of his mother. Uh, he then went to the home of a girlfriend, uh, killed her mother, waited for the girlfriend to come home, killed the girlfriend, uh, committed a carjacking. And while in that stolen vehicle, uh, ran over a pedestrian, killing him. Um, and he ended up uh, in the New York subway system where he encountered Joe Lazito. Well, no, wait. Let me take a step back. One more little bit of information. He pounded on the motorman's door. He tried to get in to the conductor. Joe Lazito, not knowing who this person was at the time, even though he'd been in the newspapers that day, Joe coming from the Philadelphia area, didn't see the New York papers or know that Maxim Gelman was a thing. And um, while Gelman is pounding on the door, a couple of police officers happened to be in there because they are doing extra duty trying to catch a serial stabber slash killer. And there Maxim Gelman is in front of them. They ask him who he is. He says he's with the police. He's obviously deranged and not with the police. They say, no, sorry. And so then Maxim Gelman turns around and does what, Joe? Well, he, um, he, at that point, he had walked away. Another uh, this is just kind of an important part of the story uh, when they didn't let him in another gentleman who was standing next to me, uh, who obviously recognized Gelman. I was the only one on the train, I think, that didn't recognize him. Uh, he went up to the same door, except he's up there with a purpose. He's trying to get the police to come out. So he knows who this guy is. And he's frantically tapping on the window, waving them out, looking over his shoulder at Gelman, waving them out. And when Gelman started to come back up towards the door, this gentleman put uh, went right back next to me and um gelman before he reached the door he was about two feet from me and three feet from the door uh he looked down at me i looked up at him and he said you're gonna die you're gonna die and he uh, pulled a knife out from uh from his jacket and he stabbed me right here uh under the eye and and, and one thing i do want to mention uh also here um joe uh i reached out to joe middle of last week uh, to be on this podcast. Uh, we're not having Joe on a guest uh, as a guest uh, because of anything that's happening in the world specifically. It has nothing to do with happened on the 4th of July um, in Illinois. Um, we're not trying to make any statements here. Uh, Joe is just a longtime fan of the Bills uh, who I've been in touch with and have wanted to have on the show. And coincidentally, um, you know, talking about these things. I even reached out to Joe last night. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of triggers uh, he has. Uh, and I wanted to make sure we were okay, given uh, what's going on in the world. Then again, Joe, if we wait another week or two, probably going to have another incident uh, that will will push us back, right? Yeah, seems that um, way. So, but but you're 100% right. This, we've been discussing this for a while now. So it's definitely just coincidental. 
so Joe, uh, and you kind of, uh, you've been self-effacing with this uh, aspect uh, of your uh, story. And I will say, 2014, you did a piece with Cracked. Now, people remember <laughs> Cracked Magazine as the knockoff to Mad Magazine, the one you didn't want. You know, if you were a kid and uh, maybe mom decided to bring back a fun magazine for you, you wanted Mad. Uh, you didn't want Cracked. Uh, but Cracked has a really cool website where they do a lot of stuff that is not Mad Magazine or Cracked Magazine. Um, and I, I, I don't have the title in front of me, but it, the, it's something along the lines of seven things you should know if you ever find yourself facing a, a serial stabber. Actually, I do have it here on my screen. Oh, cops won't help you. Seven things I saw as a real slasher victim. <laughs> And there's also a video that you can get on YouTube in, in which Joe narrates it. And it is fantastic. It is animated uh, and it takes you through the incident. So I recommend uh, if uh, if you're interested in what Joe has to say here, first off, buy his book, which I'm going to plug again. Thank you. Uh, he wrote it in 2014. The New York Subway Hero, My Battle with Evil and a Spree Killer. Um, and it's available on Amazon. And then also check out uh, what he wrote. And the video that he narrated uh, at cracked.com, uh, uh, you can get easy links to all that stuff uh, on the Wikipedia page for Maxim Gelman uh, stabbing spree. Uh, all right. So uh, oh, Tim, can I, bit of a can I interrupt one thing? The, the you can funny always interrupt. Well, the, the story about the crack thing was was funny because. I, I know crack just like you said it was the old magazine and when they contacted me I I was like wait you guys still put out a magazine and they said no we're all video now we do these animations and these these clips online I said oh, okay perfect yeah so um they, I did not narrate that because they said I did not sound New York City enough which I oh. was I was very I was very happy with by the way uh I don't you know if you if you ever met my sister my sister sounds very much New York City-ish uh but when when I spoke to them they said no offense but you you don't sound like you're from New oh, York City man. I said he, no the guy, offense the cartoon taken. even even identifies himself like hi yes. I'm Joe Lazito yes uh well most of, you know they did everything that they put in there they made there was a few slight errors but for the most part it was uh it was 100 accurate but uh after I answered the questions uh we were all set to go and then the guy's like look no offense but we wanted someone that sounded a little more New York and I said none taken I'm okay with that and uh, they got an uh I guess a, a voiceover actor but uh oh. but the, the the thing that blew my mind about that was it has over 9 million views. It absolutely blew my mind. I had no idea they had that big of a following. Well, correct me if I give a detail wrong, because I did my research through Cracked Magazine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a first for me. I, I generally yeah. rely on uh, more reliable sources. Yeah. But if if crack steered me wrong, please uh, correct the record. <laughs> no, like I said, most of the information they got uh, was correct, um, and uh, there's just a few uh, a few minor uh, you know inaccuracies. But for the most part, it, it, it's brilliantly done. Okay, so here's and obviously Joe has been self-effacing here throughout this whole interview. But the self-effacing part I was going to refer to when I first brought up cracked is um, how you continually refer to. Um, how you were an MMA fan. You're 40 at the time, right? Yep. When this happens. So uh, you're younger and a little bit in better shape. I'm thinking, oh no, you know what? Maybe not. Cause you do no, a lot yeah. of working out now. You Are you in better shape now than you were no, at, at no, the time but I of this start. I, I was in better shape then and I better get back into it right okay, now. Okay. Got it. Yeah, got it, got absolutely. It. 
and you decided to do a one leg takedown. Uh, and uh, the, the, the cracks video shows what it's supposed to look like. And then you describe what it did look like. So, all right. So we can stop talking with smiles because some bad things are about to happen to Joe Lazito. Uh, but you decide this is a fight or flight situation. You're in a subway car. There's nowhere to run. So there, the flight is, uh, is totally removed from the scenario. You have to do something. What happened? Well, yeah, he, he kind of made my decision for me. And, um, so he stabbed me in the face and, um, you know, I, I know it sounds cliche, a lot of people, but for me, my whole reason for being is my family. And I knew that I could fight back and I still might die. Uh, but I also may survive where if I just turtle, uh, he's going to carve me up like a pumpkin and I didn't, I would never get off that train. And my whole, uh, drive behind that was to get off of the train. So, um, I did go in for the single leg takedown, uh, the worst single leg takedown in history. Um, I've said it's a, it was a football tackle that may make someone like Chris Spielman or Daryl Talley proud because uh, I ended up tackling him around the waist, which did the job. I was able to take him down, but what it also did was give him free reign to my head, and that's when he, uh, he ended up stabbing me three times, uh, once on the side of the head and twice on the back of my head. And one of the wounds, uh, I didn't know it at the time until I saw the pictures after, but one of them actually uh, cut me down to my skull. Um, but I was still able to take him down. And, uh, then I was, uh, I ended up, fortunately I ended up on top of him. And also fortunately, while he was stabbing me in the back of the head, he didn't, uh, end up puncturing my spinal cord or something like that, or else, uh, we wouldn't be talking today. Did you know, and, or how aware were you of your self-defense and survival skills, or did you surprise yourself in that moment? Uh, that was, uh, I didn't have any self-defense or survival skills. That was just, uh, just it was survival really it, it was sort of like uh just i have to do something or he's going to kill me um you know i don't think you can ever prepare for something like that i mean and i guess you can you know self-defense wise you can prepare for that but once it's in your face uh you have to make some decisions and uh he kind of made my decision for me and uh and that was my choice just to do it and um you know if there was video of it it was probably really sloppy to look at so uh skills may be in quotes there but uh i was just fortunate that uh, that i did something before the knife is out of his hand, he was also able to slash you on the thumb and yeah. on the arm. Uh, how bad were those injuries? Uh, the one, the one on my thumb, actually, um, in terms of permanent damage. So he um, he got me here, basically the webbing, you know, where the thumb meets the hand, and that was sliced down to the tendon. And uh, I still have full use of it, but if I grab a, a gallon of milk, say a weird way or something, I kind of get tingles. And it's sort of a reminder, hey, maybe use the other four fingers, not just your thumb. And uh, the one on my tricep was, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four stitches, but no permanent damage other than the scar, which I think by now I've covered up with a tattoo. I know that thumb area, that's probably the worst place to get a paper cut. Yeah, it, 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 it bleeds a lot. And, uh, well, I mean, that day was, uh, you know, there were seven wounds to compete for which was going to bleed the most. But it, it was just in an awkward spot. You know, it's kind of like for an athlete, if you have an abdominal injury or a back injury, you can't sneeze, you can't do anything. And what you find out, even though my, I'm right-hand dominant, you use your left hand for a lot of things. And I found that out during the recovery process. 
there's a belief uh, with a lot of uh, people, but it's a it's a masculine thing. I, I think it's a it's a point of contention, something that you'll hear talked about at the bar. Um, you get buddies together, and what would you do in that situation? Oh, I'd beat that guy's ass. Um, now you did put the guy down and you were able to prevent a lot of further injury and probably death, uh, by what you did, but you've had now 11 years to digest this. And I'm sure that your opinion has changed as life changes and your perspective. And, but when you think back on who that was, meaning you in that moment, uh, and under different circumstances, do, do things play out differently uh, as you as you try to imagine what may have happened or what could have happened? Well, I, I guess the answer to that would be I, I don't really have an answer. And, and the reason why is because, like you said, I, I had people after the incident that would come up to me, whether you know it was on the streets or or at a game or, or a combat sports event. And they would say, you know what, if I if I were you, if I was in your position, I would have done the same thing. And my answer was always, well, I guess you're a better man than I am, because if you had asked me the day before what I would have done, I wouldn't have had an answer for you. My answer really would have been, I hope I would fight back. I, I hope I would survive. But uh, I, I honestly if you had asked me that the day before, I wouldn't have had any idea. And even to this day, it, it, have things changed? Probably not, because in, in a similar scenario, um, you know, maybe, maybe I, I would, if I had time to formulate a game plan, maybe it would be a little bit different. But if I'm in the same scenario, which is basically Thunderdome, and uh, there's no way out, and, and there's no talking reason to a person, then, you know, sometimes you have to take action. But I, I can't necessarily tell you what that action would be because you really, there's a difference between being in the situation and saying, oh, all right, so now you're in the situation, what are you going to do? Because even in, even in a, a training environment, um, you're training for what the, the perpetrator might do, but nobody really knows until you're face to face. How much when you hear people say, oh, well, I would have done that, or you just the idea of, man, that guy better be lucky. He didn't come after me. I'd have, I'd have beat him, beat his ass. Uh, how much do you find yourself thinking bullshit? Well, the funny thing is, and I say this all the time, I've been around a lot of uh, combat sports athletes and they're always the ones who are the most humble about what they're capable of. And, and, you know, you're talking about guys and ladies who they walk into any room and they're the alpha male. And there's nobody in that room that's going to push them around. But yet, you'd never know it. They're always the ones that are trying to de-escalate things and everything. So I think a lot of times when someone says, oh, they're lucky it wasn't me or I would have done the same thing, I, I almost think those are people that are trying to convince themselves um, about how tough they are. Or maybe they honestly believe that. But it's generally the, the guys who actually could handle themselves in that situation that aren't the ones that are, are bragging about what they could do or what they would do. Do you think had a big maybe oh, I'm go ahead, wondering, John. you know, and maybe you've talked to different people about this. Do you think people should have some awareness of the potential that a violent attack like this could happen and either train self-defense or have, as you call it, a game plan, some sort of idea in their own mind of how they would handle this type of, you know, horrific challenge that could come to anybody on any 
subway car or any kind of situation in life, something like this could theoretically happen. You know, I think the biggest problem with that is I think a lot of people just feel like it can never happen to them. And um, I, I tell you what, what is becoming more and more frightening for me um, as I, you know, as I work, I still go to work in the city and it's just every day more and more people are just so into their uh, devices and people with their heads down and people on subway, you see it all the time. People get thrown on the subway tracks or get attacked on platforms because they're not paying attention. So, um, I, you know, the thing is, I guess it really depends on the individual. I, I know now, yeah, that, uh, you know, I do things a little bit differently when I get on uh, public transportation. I always try to be at one end of the car so I can see what's going on at the other end of the car. Um, I use windows now and reflections like I've never used them before. So, but this is all stuff I never did uh, before the attack. So, um, do I think it's a good idea? Obviously, yes. But, you know, for some people, maybe they just don't have the time and maybe they think it's a big investment where the reality is you could just go on YouTube and there's thousands of self-defense videos that could even teach you the basics. But like I said, I think the biggest thing is people and, and maybe I was guilty of that, you know, my whole life up until that day. You just don't think it's going to happen to you. Now, just because Maxim Gelman uh, has been apprehended uh, after you're able to wrest the knife away from him and you've been uh, on the ground there, the police come and we're going to learn here in a little bit how they took credit for uh, apprehending Maxim Gelman. Uh, just because the attack is over doesn't mean you're out of the woods. So you are bleeding profusely on the subway car. Um, who was Alfred Douglas? AKA napkin man. <laughs> well, you know, embarrassingly, and I guess it's a good thing because the media will come up with uh, nicknames for people. And, and I guess there are worse nicknames out there than to be called the subway hero. Although I kind of, it's a little bit embarrassing for me, but uh, if you ask me who Alfred Douglas is, I'm going to tell you he was the real hero that day. Um, I was sitting there bleeding profusely out of um I mean, I was wounded seven times. One of them was a little smaller, maybe the one on my knuckle and uh, the one on my thumb and, and my tricep weren't going to kill me. Uh, but the ones in my head were very deep. And it was uh, basically like I, I tell people, next time you take a shower, put your neck to the um, to the shower head and let it pour down both sides of you. And that's really how the blood was pouring out of me. And the reason why I was sitting there was because when the... Uh, when the fight was going on, someone had pulled the emergency brake. So we were stuck in the tunnel between Penn Station, which is uh, the station under Madison Square Garden, and 42nd Street. So um, I had, uh, once the police saved me, uh, and I went and got, uh, I sat down on the subway seat. I was just sitting there, and I was just bleeding profusely, and I, I basically just just talking to myself like I, I remember one of the things I said to myself is try to stay calm because I'm not a doctor I don't know if I get amped up or I get excited is the blood going to come out faster I have no idea so I'm trying to talk myself down trying to talk you know I guess talk my adrenaline down because that's I, a I feel pretty like clear thought in the moment don't you think I I don't know like I just figured that I mean I, I don't know but I remember thinking that and I, I was literally trying to calm myself down because I'm thinking if I get excited and now I don't realize that the blood is literally spurting out of my head, like like when your heart beats. But in my in my mind, I'm like, well, maybe just try to calm down. 
but then what happens is I'm sitting there for a few minutes and now I start to get nervous because we're still not moving and I don't want to die there and I want to see my family. And um, uh, we're just sitting there and Alfred Douglas, um, he came up, actually, he started yelling at the other passengers like, hey, no one's going to help this guy. Are you really ready to watch a man die in front of your eyes? And Alfred uh, came over with his bare hands and he and he and he basically applied pressure to my deepest wound. And uh, then he was asking people if they had you know, napkins or paper towel, whatever. And the woman gave him some napkins that she had, which, of course, were drenched within two seconds. But um, Alfred was the guy who I credit with saving my life. And he's the person that um, I say is the real hero that day. And the unfortunate part about this is I'm the only person that has ever mentioned Alfred um, in the media. The the police never did. The city never did. Uh, Alfred was just and they interviewed Alfred. They interviewed every single person that was on the train that day that they were able to corral and they had Alfred there for a few hours interviewing him and they never once gave him any credit, but uh, who's Alfred Douglas? The answer is he's the real hero that day. Have you stayed in touch with Alfred? We spoke once or twice afterwards. Um, we haven't stayed in touch and uh, I did an, I did a podcast uh, maybe last year uh, that was basically uh, focusing on the, the duties of the police and him and I didn't speak, but they actually tracked him down and they got, uh, they got his opinions on things. And he was like most people shocked to find out that the uh, Supreme court and we'll probably, I'm sure we'll get into that. So no spoiler alerts here. Uh, but we spoke maybe uh, once or twice afterwards. And then I think we were going to, one of the news stations was going to try to get us together, maybe uh, at a restaurant or something like that. And it just never, it never panned out well let's talk about the lawsuit um 2012 you filed a lawsuit against new york city over negligence i mean i don't know what the exact charge was but it was a civil suit against new york city it was eventually dismissed um and what the judge did was cite a supreme court case from 2005 castle rock v gonzalez uh, in which the Supreme Court ruled that police do not have a duty to protect someone. Um, I guess we're jumping ahead because we left a little bit of the detail out. What was it that the police did in the situation or did not do that had you so upset? Well, like you uh, alluded to, the the police. So during this this killing spree that Maxim Gelman was on, eventually he was spotted in uh, New York subways, I believe uh, around 96th Street. And uh, someone had seen him, went up to street level, called the police and said, I just saw Maxim Gelman. He's in the subway. So if you picture any of the old cop shows or cop movies, well, now you got the APB out. They sent thousands of police officers into the subways. Now, for people that aren't familiar with the New York City subway system, there's a ton of subway lines. There's a ton of subway cars. At this point, it actually, to me, would almost be like trying to find a needle in a haystack because he's going to be jumping on and off trains. He's going to be running in tunnels. The fact that he ended up on a subway car that had two police officers in it is to me, it's not even a minor miracle. Actually, the odds of that happening are, are pretty insane. And when you factor in the odds of him actually knocking on the door where the police, so the police were in the motorman's compartment watching the tracks uh, because they needed to get all the police that were off the tracks. Well, they were, well at that point, they were looking for Gelman on the tracks. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead now. Um, 
they're looking for him on the tracks. So now, because we're going very slowly, and now while they're watching the tracks, they get a knock at the door, and it's the guy they're looking for. It's your it's your career defining arrest falling right into your hands, and he doesn't know that he's speaking to the police. He thinks he's speaking to the engineer. So instead of them doing what I do believe uh, a good number of police would do, come out and handle the situation, they just had a conversation with this man and basically let him attack me. And they let him, uh, they let us have our fight and they basically let him do what he had to do to me in order to make it easier for them to uh, finally arrest him. And uh, one thing I would like to bring up, when the dust settled, and when we got to 42nd Street, um, they had cleared the station. So that we get to 42nd Street. The paramedics are there waiting for me. As soon as they open the doors, the paramedics come on. They, they attend to me. They take Gelman off the, off the subway. They bring him upstairs. As they're taking me off the, the subway seat and putting me onto the stretcher, I pass out. And, but I'm still conscious, conscious. It's kind of like when you're falling asleep watching TV and you can still hear the TV even though your eyes are closed. And I hear what's going on around me. And I heard one of the police officers behind me. It was the female police officer. That's one of the inaccuracies of the cracked uh, animation. It was a male cop and a female cop, not two male cops. Uh, I hear her behind me talking to one of the other police officers, and I heard her call me likely. And I didn't know what that meant. And I found out later that day in the hospital uh, from my sister, who was also a member of the NYPD, and uh, I said, hey, what does it mean when you guys call someone likely? And my sister turned white and she goes, what do you mean, Joseph? They called you likely. I said, yeah, I heard her say something, something likely. She goes, that means likely to die. So they were ready for me to go. And uh, in the years that have happened since then, I'm sure I'm a little bit of a thorn in their side. Uh, but those two officers were ready to sacrifice my life to make their arrest when nobody had to get hurt. They could have just, just done their job right from the beginning. What was your sister? What kind of feedback did you get from your sister on the police officers and what they did and did not do that day? Well, my sister, uh, I, I'm sort of mellow, you know, I'm sort of laid back. I'm sort of mellow. My sister is actually, uh, she's, if I can say she's kind of a badass and my sister will always march to the beat of her own drummer. And before I even uh, announced the lawsuit, I, I obviously I'm discussing it with my family. And I said, listen, I don't want you to get any blowback from this. And um, needless to say, she absolutely didn't care at all. She said, this is ridiculous. And to be honest with you, um, most of the police officers that I've encountered I have some good friends who recently retired from the force and most of the officers in her precinct are actually behind me because um, it makes them all look bad. And I believe that if I'm not mistaken, I believe the officers in her precinct actually took up a collection for me because obviously I was out of work for a little bit in, in Lincoln center it was great. They actually uh, paid me for the time I was out, but I think they took up a, a little bit of a collection. So um, you're always going to get in any, in any occupation, you're always going to get the people that, that told the company line and are always going to be pro the, pro, whatever the, the occupation is. But I, I did get a lot of support from, uh, from police officers. I, I had officers come up to me in Penn Station that said, I could never say this publicly, but I hope you win. Uh, it's an embarrassment. They're an embarrassment. Uh, you know, on the, I don't know if you guys have TD Bank up there in Buffalo, but we have them here. And there's always, yeah, so they, they hire um, 
police officers, I guess, on their days off and they'll, they'll be security and uniforms there. And I would go into the bank and I had multiple officers say, hey, you're the guy from the subway. How did everything go? And, you know, I, I received a lot of support from from the police. But my sister, she couldn't care. She was probably waiting for someone to say something to her, to be honest. So uh, but you know, she's my sister and I love her and uh, and we support each other with everything. So that was absolutely a no brainer. She was she was ready. One of the fascinating parts, there's so many fascinating parts to the story, but um, this sounds like it comes uh, out of a, out of an espionage film, um, is uh, the person tailing you on your way to work one day, who happens to be a member of the grand jury, uh, who heard the police uh, testify under oath. Uh, and can you uh, relay that scene for us? Yeah, so when I, I did a lot of interviews following uh, everything that happened. I mean, I was in the hospital on Saturday. Uh, they released me Sunday afternoon on Monday. I was in the, on good morning America on the big billboard in, uh, in New York city, doing interviews with all the networks. And, you know, I always tried to downplay my role in this. And I always try to say, well, I'm not a hero. And uh, you know, people that risk their lives every day, they're heroes, you know, like, not necessarily the two cops on my train, but police officers, fire, firefighters, uh, EMTs that save lives. And that was what I said. And I honestly feel that way. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I had a sister. Thank God she's retired. And every day she would go to work not knowing if she was coming home to my niece that night. So um, that was basically what I would always try to deflect any praise. And what happened was I was out of work for a few weeks. And in that time I was out of work, I testified before the grand jury and uh that day i testified with uh the same day as the two officers and uh, mine went first um and i they had showed some photographs of uh the end result of my wounds to the grand jury which uh, it was uh, like i did i only saw one of them that's the one i was mentioning earlier where you could see my skull um and the grand jury just they i'm surprised some of them didn't get sick some of them wouldn't even look at them because you could see if you looked over there was a lot of blood and and this and that but um when i went back to work apparently there was a, a member of the grand jury that day that had been because it was in the papers you know they worked for lincoln center and he would pop up every now and then looking for me and i get out of work one day and i have time to wait for my train so uh in the front of lincoln center there's a fountain so i'm just talking to one of my buddies on the phone and um i go you're not going to believe this i said there's someone following me and he goes get out of here and i'm like i'm telling you so i go let me i'll call you back so i hang up the phone i slow my pace he keeps his pace and i turn around quickly and i'm like can i help you and he goes oh you know i'm not looking i'm not looking for trouble you know i'm not uh, i just want to talk to you and then he's like, you're Joe, right? The guy from the subway, which is funny because I still have all my staples in my head and all the other stuff. So, yeah, it was obvious. And uh, he goes, oh, I was on the grand jury. So, again, this is a big story in the paper. So I said, prove it. And the reason why I mentioned the photos is because those were never made public, but he described what they were. So I knew he was legitimate. And he told me that, you know, after I testified that he went on YouTube and watched a lot of my videos and he goes, listen, I, I just got to tell you, you're giving you're giving way too much credit to the police. They hung you out to dry. And I said, well, I wasn't I didn't mean them specifically. I was just talking in general. He goes, no, 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 you don't really understand what happened. So I said, well, OK, what happened? Because in my head, I knew there was a delay in their action, but I didn't know the details. And 
basically after I was done testifying, I left, I went home, Terrence Howell, the male cop that day, he testified. And basically what he testified to was that when we had first started fighting, he had, he had started to open the door to come out, but he thought that Maxim, Maxim Gelman had a gun. So he closed the door and stayed inside. So basically what he testified to was leaving a, a train full of unarmed civilians to deal with a spree killer that he was there to stop. And with that, uh, I felt like I, it, I felt like I was attacked all over again. And, you know, you had mentioned my commute earlier when we were, we were talking, I don't think we're recording yet, but yes, yeah, so now I, I have to, uh, at the time I'm living in Philadelphia. Now I have this on my mind. I have to, I have a two and a half hour commute home and I have to tell my wife this. And uh, like I said, that was just like getting attacked all over again. How did, uh, how did the, the, court proceedings or the litigation process leave you? And I know that obviously the defeat is, is self-explanatory, but I'm sure it was more visceral than that. You use the word defeat and I wish it was a defeat. I don't even consider that I got up to the plate. You know, my, my whole thing with, with the system that we have here in this country is um, I, I feel like I deserve a chance. I deserved my chance to stand in a courtroom in front of a jury of my peers to have my peace and bring this and let the people decide what happened that day. And the judge, because I feel there is a large amount of corruption in this country in the justice system, uh, obviously the judge, um, in my opinion, maybe it's not obvious, but uh, I always feel like th there's very few opportunities in life to really make a difference. And I had mentioned earlier with this you know, the potential for a career defining arrest that that was dropped into these two officers hands and, and they, they let it go. And now the judge has an opportunity here. Yes, there were cases, there were precedents that were set. Uh, nothing like my case, though. And the judge here had an opportunity to be that person that says, well, and, and she basically said how credible my account was in, in her dismissal papers. And this, this judge had the opportunity to be the judge that said, this is wrong. We have, we have to allow this to go to court. And, you know, guys, if I had gone to court and I had said my piece and when it was all said and done, the jury says they're, they're not guilty, I wouldn't be happy. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't be happy. But I'd feel like the process was, was done and maybe I didn't do a good enough job of presenting it. But I didn't even get the opportunity. And to this day, that's, that's something that I, I will never get over. That's all I ever wanted was a chance. I didn't get it. And, um, you know, if people see my Twitter account every day, I, uh, you know, I'm posting about stuff like that every day because I don't want to say it's not fair because I sound like a child. But, but what are we doing here? You know, I, just give me my chance. And if I lose, I lose. There's no shame in losing. But give me the opportunity, but it was obvious that she was protecting the city and the, uh, and the police. I was going to say, you do believe it is kind of that case of a local judge protecting the local police officers, or is there some legal basis to the decision that was made? 
well, it's a Supreme Court. It wasn't even like the local courts. It was a Supreme Court judge. And again, like Tim had cited, uh, Tim had cited one of the cases that they used. And in their in their papers, the the city's papers to um, dismiss my case, they cited cases that had absolutely nothing to do with my case. There were cases involving uh, broken fences. There were cases involving luxury sports cars. Uh, nothing. There was there was maybe one case out of maybe the hundred that they put in there that was even remotely in the same universe as mine. And like I said, in my opinion, you get very few, you know, there are certain occupations where you can make a difference. And I think being a judge is one of those where you can kind of say, I can kind of dismiss this and use this, these precedents as an example, or I can do something different here because this case is like nothing I've ever seen before. The Castle Rock and Gonzalez case is a tragic case and, you know, and, and it's heartbreaking. It has nothing to do. There's no, there's no similarities to my case, but the corporate counsel for the city, they just, it just seemed like they threw every sort of case on their dismissal papers and see what stuck. And um, I feel like that my, my papers against dismissal, um, and and the judge even said it in, in her dismissal that uh, my account seems highly credible, and to me, so was that my consolation prize? Because so, what are you saying that you believe my account, but you're still going to screw me? Uh, it's not a consolation prize I wanted. Rather, get the opportunity to battle, and then if I lose, so be it. But let me let me go out that way. I don't know if thrown out cases are used as precedent, but have you ever heard about your case being used as precedent to stop people from suing the city? Um, I don't know about that. What I do know is every time something comes up, like the unfortunate events in Uvalde, where the police sort of, well, I don't know what they were thinking, uh, but uh, in articles, it's always cited like uh, in, in, because I think the reaction for most people is, well, what were the police doing? And, you know, like my lawyer and I said, there's no amount of, of money that's going to change what happened. But in this day and age, there has to, well, I'm a big accountability guy. And if the only accountability is to bring the police to court and make them pay a punishment or, or just whatever, then so be it. And I'm sure if you ask any of the parents of the children in Uvalde, they're not looking for money. It's never going to bring their children back. But there has to be some accountability. And in this, and like in New York City, I, I tweet about it every day, there's no accountability here for criminals. Um, so usually when something like that happens, uh, my case is often cited by writers uh, but I don't know if it's if it's ever been cited in a case that's uh, that's been thrown out. I mean, they could. I mean, I guess so. Right. Because it's it's on the books as a case officially, uh, even though it never went to court. So, I mean, maybe they could, but I'm not aware of it. How does it affect you when you see news stories or, or violent incidents that happen around the country? And, and in some cases, there is maybe police negligence or misconduct involved. It may, you know, I, I was, uh, this is one of the things Tim and I were talking about last night. It makes me angry. Um, and I, and the reason why it makes me angry is uh, obviously there's the surface anger where you go, what were you thinking? You know, we'll go back to Uvalde where there's children and their lives at stake. What, what were you doing? Um, but part of the anger comes from the fact that I think if my case was allowed to go to court and I think if, if I did win, then I think that opens up an avenue for a lot of these people that want to seek 
uh, some sort of retribution or accountability for those people who failed them. So I'm angry on the surface just with the news story, but then I'm, I, there's a deeper anger at thinking that I didn't get the opportunity to maybe help other people when they're going through something tragic like that. How much does that affect you, Joe, in terms of, uh, I mean, you did what you could. I mean, you, you tried three times, in fact, right, to, to sue New York City. Um, but do you carry weight on this? You shouldn't. I'm not saying that you should, but do you, I mean, you're a human being, do you? Um, the thing that, bo- like I said, the thing that bothers me the most is that I didn't get my opportunity. Um, you know, it bothers me when I, like I, like I just said, where I feel like, uh, you know, maybe I could have helped other people, but I, I try to, I try to think things through. I try to play everything through. And um, the reason why I, I didn't have the opportunity to maybe help people when they're going through tragic events was not of my doing. Um, I, I'm always one to say, Um, If I can put my head on my pillow at night and know that I did the best I could that day, whether it was for my family or for friends or whatever, then if if things didn't happen and it was out of my control, then I really can't have that way on my conscience. So, um, but if I half-assed it that day or half-assed an opportunity, well, yeah, that would bother me. But uh, I know when it comes to my case, I, I, you know, the sports cliche, I gave it a hundred percent and I did everything I could do. Uh, I was just David going up against a Goliath and uh, I didn't have the resources to appeal. So it was really just the one time that uh, it was dismissed. And when I searched out for other uh, legal counsel, um, it was uh, it was an uphill battle because then they had to prove that the first why the first case shouldn't have been dismissed. And I I'm just a middle class guy living paycheck to paycheck. So I didn't have the resources to to appeal or anything like that. So they kind of had me by the balls. How have you used this experience? Uh, how have you channeled it over the last 11 years? Uh, probably. See, that's a that's a tough question in a sense where it's easy to say, well, I don't take anything for granted anymore. Uh, probably, probably the biggest thing, and I know my, my family probably gets sick of me saying this, but uh, I don't, I don't let little things bother me uh, because something I say all the time is I've been through worse. So where something might be a stressful uh, situation for some people, for most people, I kind of go, well, you know, I've been through worse. And maybe that gives, maybe that kind of just gives me the opportunity to step back and see if there's a way to handle the situation without, um, you know, losing my mind or, or overreacting. Uh, but other than that, I, you know, it, it, I'm still the same person. I'm still the same person that I always was. But, uh, you know, like I said, I maybe uh, I, I approach things differently when I use public transportation. Um, I have less faith in the, in the uh, government and justice system, but, for, for the most part, I'm pretty much the same person. How has your experience or has it affected how you view mixed martial arts and sports fighting and even the violence in hockey and football and, and any type of violence for the sake of play and recreation? It hasn't, um, to be honest, because with, with football and, and combat sports and hockey, um, those are grown men and women. Those are adults. Um, they well, nowadays anyway, with, with obviously with concussions and the, the research behind that, people know what they're getting into. Um, I, I, I find it, I don't watch 
uh, combat sports as much as I used to, but it's only because I think it's sort of diluted right now. I kind of liked it better the old, the old way where it was maybe one event a month or one event every six weeks. Um, but it, it has nothing to do with, with that. I, I believe that, um, grown people make their own decisions. It's sort of like me. I, I can't worry about someone who chooses to smoke or drink to excess. Even if it's a friend of mine, I could try to maybe talk them out of it, but, um, I, I don't really, care for people to sort of put push their beliefs on me and i like to do the same thing so if if you want if if uh combat sports or football or or something high impact where there's a there's a danger down the road is, is an opportunity that someone wants to pursue well then then go for it uh you know like i said there's dangers to everything and i don't want that to sound like a cop-out but if you choose to smoke every day or, or, or drink, like I said, you can do that to excess and you can, you can shorten your life there. So um, I, I feel the same way about uh, sports and, and things about sports that I did before the incident. How do you feel about your Buffalo bills? Let's uh, let's change the subject, I guess, uh, because that is how we know each other. And yep. uh, you are wearing your Bills cap, although Jonah <laughs> did point out they are not traditional colors. It looks like it could be a Detroit Lions cap. Yes. Um, your Bills, what, uh, what has you excited and what has you worried? You know what? I can honestly say I, when you mention the Buffalo Bills, I just smile. You know, it just – when I was younger, I, I was all into like stats and numbers and things like that. And I find myself as I get older, I just want to watch the games. You know, there's so much, there's so much information out there. We're back when, when, you know, Tim and I, Tim, I think we were probably about the same age, Jonah, you look a lot younger than us, but we're back in the day we had yeah. a, yeah, yeah. We had a search for all that information where now it's at our fingertips and I kind of liked it better the old way, the old way. Um, now I get my, my information from, uh, from a few, people in the Buffalo media, uh, present company included uh, on my bills. And, uh, but I kind of filter it out, but, but I, my thing is don't, you gotta, you gotta go for it. Like the whole point of playing is to win. And this, this team, the way it's currently constituted to me is built to win and win now. And uh, I, I think some people find me sickening, sickeningly optimistic, but I usually am that way about the bills. Uh, usually well, when there were 16 game seasons, I used to predict 12 and four every year. I'd go eight, no at home and split on the road. Um, nothing really concerns me right now because, well, I mean, the, the one thing I'm always concerned about, uh, obviously if Josh Allen gets hurt, then, then that's like every team, your starting quarterback gets hurt. Uh, then you got to go to a plan B and it's usually not uh, nearly as good as plan A. But I think if everyone stays healthy, especially Josh Allen, uh, I, I don't, I will not settle for anything less than a Super Bowl victory this year. How did you come to be a Bills fan? And maybe you can tell us why you're wearing that Lions hat. Yes. So I became <laughs> a Bills fan. So I grew up in Queens, uh, which is a borough outside of Manhattan. And I, we lived downstairs from my grandparents and my uncle. Now, my uncle was, was only a little bit older than me. So it was kind of like having a big brother. And he was a Jets fan. And he loved Joe Namath. So I used to watch football with him and we were watching um, Bills and Jets once and they had Joe Ferguson. And, you know, when you're a kid, it could just be any reason why you root for a team. So my uncle was there. He liked Joe Namath, Jet fan. I'm Joe. My uncle's Joe. Bills have a Joe Ferguson. It's as simple as that. I, I probably like the helmets too. 
And uh, I just latched on to them and, and the rest is history. And, and to this day, Joe Ferguson's still my favorite all-time bill. It's not the X's and O's, Jonah. It's the Jimmy's and Joe's. That's it. In this Jimmy, case, definitely. <laughs> the, the Jimmy's and OJ's. Yeah. Oh, and, and about the hat. So uh, I, I, I try not to have too many real-life uh, rules, but I have a lot of stupid things. Like I call them violations. Like if you have a, a jersey with your own name on the back, that's a violation. Or if you have a jersey style and you have a name and number on the back and the player never wore that, like uh, down here, we have a lot of um, stupid people that wear the Islanders fisherman jersey, but they'll put the, you know, the, the Hall of Famers on the back. That drives me crazy. Uh, I don't own any piece of Buffalo memorabilia that isn't red, white, and blue. I love this hat and I allow myself to wear it because it's the original colors. So uh, that's the only piece of memorabilia I have that isn't red, white, and blue. On a technicality. Always. You got to find the technicalities. Absolutely. Or else I wouldn't have bought it. Believe it or not, I absolutely, as much as I like it, I wouldn't have purchased it. Ralph Wilson, uh, his original choice of colors were the same as his Detroit Lions yeah. uh, that he grew up rooting for and owned a little piece of uh, at one point. Um, Joe, I, tell us, I mean, uh, people who are watching on YouTube can see all the jerseys back there. It looks like it's all hockey, but maybe you have some other studies. Is it all Islanders? What, what we got? So, And what, what this, are you into? What are you, in, I mean, I guess not just what you have on display, but what are you into? Well, um, I used to be, I grew up uh, baseball, football, hockey. I don't really watch baseball too much anymore. I think the analytics have killed it for me and the, uh, just the, the player, the ESPN attitude, you know, look at me attitude. Uh, that's not for me. You know, my friends, my wife, they call me the cranky old man. That, that's not for me. I love watching the classic games on TV. Um, I don't really watch too much baseball anymore, but still uh, football, hockey. I like combat sports. Uh, I actually watch the CFL, Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I follow them. Um, so I like that. And um, down here, you know, uh, I've been collecting for so many years, but I never really had the opportunity to display it. And in January, we moved to this new place here. And uh, one of the selling points was it has a pretty big basement. So I'm able to display all my memorabilia. And uh, most of it is hockey. It's it's a lot of game jerseys from a lot of the tougher players who, uh, who have ever played the game uh, with Islander connections. And then further down, uh, it, it's a laptop, so I can't take you down there. But further down there, uh, I have a bunch of game use sticks and I have some uh, some Bills items as well, some jerseys, some helmets. So uh, if, uh, if I was on my phone, I could give you a little bit of a tour. But uh, but yeah, so this is uh, just something that I've always wanted to do. And the ironic thing is, and I guess this probably happens with a lot of people, uh, once I actually set everything up, I didn't think there was any chance in hell that I'd run out of room, but of course I have run out of room. So uh, I might have to liquidate a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, this is where, uh, this is where I come down. We watch all the games down here. My wife is a sports nut too. So we watch all the games down here and um, just finally, you know, finally after all these years can, uh, can have a place of my own. So. What about your time working for Fleer? How did that, what was that like? And and how did that maybe, ignite some of your sports memorabilia collecting jonah if you tell any kid that collected baseball cards at any point in their life that hey you're you're going to get a job where you get to pick the pictures to be on sports cards that's uh, pretty amazing uh it was an absolute dream job i got the job because i used to work for uh, bruce bennett studios which uh he's a world-renowned hockey photographer he now works for getty images he was the team photographer uh for the islanders the rangers and the flyers and I worked for him doing research. And uh, 
a photo editor position became available at FLIR. I interviewed for it and I got it. And um, that was a blast. I, I did that for uh, uh, maybe five years before they, uh, they filed for bankruptcy. But that was, uh, like I said, it was a dream job. You get to pick pictures, um, you know, to be on, on sports cards. And to I remember, you know, picking a picture of Mark McGuire, uh, one of his cards with his son. And uh, I think there was another one of Kyle Turley with his child. And it was actually pretty cool just to uh, to be able to, to do something like that because you have to obviously get their permission also. And uh, when, when you see it come to life, you see it come to fruition, it's actually pretty cool. What's that process like? Can you take us through it? Unless it's too painstaking, but when you're an, a photo editor for baseball cards and what, what did Fleer do? Fleer did football and baseball, right? They didn't do hockey? Uh, we did baseball, football, um, as far as sports go, baseball, football, basketball. Um, I think, and then we didn't have the, we didn't have an NHL license while I was there, but we were allowed to do a few sets of retired players. Cause then you were just dealing with the individual players. So right. okay, during gotcha. my, during my time there, we did three sets of retired players. And what's the process like then when it comes time to like, what, what is given to you? What is, uh, do, are you given, a what's your. We have, your, um, I'm trying to think of the word. What's the word? The, what? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, well, what's, your, what's your assignment? Yeah, they give so you a manila folder or what, whatever the <laughs> hell. I don't know. So, so when I first started there. Your dossier. Uh, yeah. Well, that's a fancy word. When we first started there, when I first started there, uh, all the photos were on 35 millimeter slides. So we'd have file cabinets full of slides. We, we had uh, photographers that would take pick. We had, I think, eight photographers that we, we had on staff that would shoot um, the football and the baseball and then the NBA we would get from NBA photos. Um, but the football baseball that was done in house. Uh, and basically the, um, the person that was in charge of the set would just give us a checklist of players that were going to be in the set. And then we would just go to our photo library and, uh, and pick out the photos. And then they were handed off to, um, another one of my colleagues. They took it from there and it eventually went to printing. Um, towards the end of my tenures, when everything started to go digital, it was a lot easier then because then we just had uh, computer programs where the, all the libraries were stored online. So it made the process a little bit more streamlined. But, you know, there was there was more to it. And it was funny because my boss at the time would always kind of cringe when people would go, oh, you just pick the pictures for the cards. And obviously we did other things. It wasn't that simple, but that was the crux of the job. And it was awesome. And um and that was basically it. So for, like I said, for the NBA, we'd have to go up to Secaucus and, and go to NBA photos. And then when we did to, when we did the, uh, the hockey sets, uh, that's when I was able to go back to Bruce Bennett studios this time as a client and, uh, and pick the photos for those sets. So, but uh, it was, it's, it's as cool as you think it was, to be honest with you. If you have any, if you're thinking that sounds pretty cool, it was, it was amazing. Can you still you have get a job like that? Or I guess maybe, the sports card industry has changed, but is reviving in some ways. Uh, well, more I, about this than I do. I would think there's probably jobs out there like that, but I think there's less companies. Um, I think right now it's pretty much just tops and upper deck. If you see the Fleer name out there, I think that's an upper deck product. They, when, uh, when Fleer filed for bankruptcy, I think upper deck picked some of the bones clean and, and bought the rights to certain things. So, uh, I believe if you see a Fleer, a new uh, Fleer product, that's actually an upper deck product. Um, I just think there's not that much out there. I'm sure there are people that have positions like that. Uh, but that my time in that industry is, is gone. 
Is there a famous card that you did? I mean, some of the some cards got to be iconic, rookie cards or what have you. Or do you have any to mention? No. Well, I, it's funny. I because I think when people think of Fleer, they right away think of the Billy Ripken card. And of course, when I when I was there for a little bit, I said, "Hey, where's that Billy Ripken slide?" And it's it was in like this safe, this giant safe that nobody had the key to even get into the door that locked where the safe was behind. So, um, no, I, I don't, I don't have any famous ones, but I, I will say my favorite set that I did was, uh, we did a, one of the hockey sets we did, and it was sort of focused on the, uh, the more physical players. And, uh, that was a fun set to do because I got a lot of the players in there, um, you know, that are players that I grew up admiring. So that was probably my favorite set. Well, Joe, this has been fun. Uh, I don't know if you have any final thoughts on your bills uh, that you'd like to mention. You already picked them to win the Super Bowl, so I yes. don't really know what more there is to say. <laughs> um, but um, it should be a entertaining season. If it's not an entertaining season, then something really went wrong. Yes, and I, well, I would like to say something, Tim, because I know one of the things we discussed was about how Josh Allen is sort of required conversation now, and I know that uh, I just want to say what it is about Josh Allen that why he's a a fan, why this household is a big fan of his. Uh, I, I'm 51, like I said, I get jaded now a little bit with the salaries and and the business end of sports. And one of the reasons why my wife and I like we we love Josh Allen is because obviously he's. He has a lot of money. He's set for life, probably set for a couple of lifetimes. But when he's on the field, he kind of just looks like a kid. Like he looks like he's having fun out there and he has that youthful exuberance and it actually looks, looks like he cares. And when they're doing well, he's so happy. And when they're not doing well, it looks like it's really bothering him. And I think with a lot of the athletes out there, I don't seem to get that anymore. And Josh, he just seems to be like a big 14 year old out there doing things and just having fun. And, and the one analogy that, that I've always given, another Buffalo sports person that I equate his exuberance to, uh, Brad May. When Brad May was with Buffalo, I, I got to know him pretty well. I still consider him a friend. And even though it's a, it's a business and Brad May played a very physical role, and, and I think maybe in the beginning was criticized a little unfairly because, uh, you know, first-round pick, he had a great career. Brad May always had a smile on his face. He always, he always appreciated the, the job that he had playing professional sports. And obviously Brad th didn't make the money that Josh makes, I'm sure even in a season, but to this day, if you look at Brad May's social media, he's just this happy guy. Um, never any negativity. He's just always positive. And th at a certain point in Josh's career, I kind of made that connection with him and Brad that they're just like these big kids out there. And for someone like me, that, that really resonates with me. And I really appreciate it because it seems like they care. And, um, that's my little spiel on Josh Allen. And Tim, by the way, you're right. Brian Cox is still the number one enemy in my eyes. Though we just talked about that a couple of episodes ago. Right. He'll always be he'll always be my number one. Your sports villain. Um, Absolutely. What, Joe, what do you think about the state of the Buffalo Sabres being, I believe, an Islanders fan, but you yes. follow the NHL probably well enough to have a take? Uh, I think, I, in my opinion, I think for Sabres fans, this is probably the first time in a long time. I think you should have a, a real sense of optimism. Um, you know, obviously it's a long road ahead, but it seems like they really, they really trust in Granado. He seems like the right person for the job. Um, I think it's just, they got to capitalize on these draft picks. I think, I think uh, for a long time, you know, Buffalo Sabres hockey was sort of like how the Islanders were down here. It was sort of like a dead end. And it was even as optimistic as I always try to be. 
I couldn't be with the Islanders. And I think a lot of Sabres fans probably feel the same way where now I think they're, they're a team maybe two, three years down the road to look out for. I, I think that, uh, they're progressing in the right direction. I think they're they're making some strides that other teams aren't. So, um, you know, I, I wish them all the best. I've always kind of liked following the Sabres. You know, like I said, mentioned Brad May and when they had, you know, guys like May and, and Barnaby and Bobby Bugner and uh, Roman Ender, those are my kind of players. So, uh, so I always, uh, you know, when Ted Nolan was the coach, that's really around the time where I really started uh, – appreciating the Sabres and there how could you not root for them even even from the outside like you know Buffalo blue collar town be great for the Sabres to be successful and, and give the fans something to cheer for yeah as a Bills fan I'm sure that translates because you know the fan base yeah and you uh you can commiserate with them and there's so much overlap with Bills and Sabres fans and hell Long Island's not that much different either I mean it's uh you know that's uh although you have experienced some championships. Yeah. And, and things are, uh, I know there are some fans that are a little down after going to uh, the two Eastern conference finals and then uh, having a down year this year, but there's, there's so much that went into that down year this year. And uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm expecting a long playoff run with the Islanders too next year. They still have the same core here. And um, you know, it, it, you start with the goaltending and go out, you know, goaltending solid, the, the defense is solid and, you know, my wife thinks I'm crazy when I say I say things like that sometimes, but I'm expecting a long playoff run here too. So, um, you know, we're Islanders uh, are in a little different. Spot. They're they're a little ahead of, of Buffalo at the moment, but there's no reason why Buffalo can't be in a spot like this uh, in a year or two. What did you think of CM Punk showing up on Long Island in the Tavares jersey? Did you get a look at that. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. Uh, you're you're speaking to one of the few Islander fans who doesn't hate John Tavares. Um, I, I like John Tavares as a person, uh, when everything happened to me back then, there were a lot of organizations, uh, that really kind of wrapped their arms around me. The Islanders were one of them. Uh, Dean Chenault was an assistant coach and I had known Dean for a long time before that. And the Islanders were really one of the, one of the organizations that kind of you know wrapped their arms around me and John was there and John was really good to me. So, uh, to me, it's more about the person than the athlete. And, uh, as much as I do like Garth Snow, I think Garth is just as culpable as John when he left, because uh, if I'm Garth Snow and I have John in my office, if John doesn't sign that contract, I got to trade him. I can't take the chance of him leaving. Um, what I thought about that, I thought that was hilarious. I thought it was uh, the perfect heel move to do here uh, to wear a John Tavares jersey at the new UBS arena. I thought that was hilarious. What would be number two? Here? Do you have to go back to an old timer? You know, do you have to go back to uh... – you know, or a ranger you probably probably rangers uh you could probably put anyone maybe messier um maybe uh, but any ranger jersey is going to do the trick um anything rangers it will will definitely do the trick but that tavares thing yeah he's he's kind of public enemy number one here even if well my wife and i are, are split on that she she's not a fan but uh but that was that was a good move but yeah a ranger uh, anything rangers would definitely be uh be number two what would the comparable move be at a Buffalo show? Would it be a Jack Eichel jersey? Probably, yeah, I would say so. Right now, there's a, a lot Tom of Brady. hate towards him. I mean, if we're doing hockey, but uh, if you're doing hockey, then yeah, probably Eichel. But Tom Brady, right? 
Yeah, probably Brady, and, uh, unless you're me and and you still hate the Dolphins more than the Patriots because I'm I'm so old. I remember when they were the scourge for Bills fans. So uh, the Dolphins will always be my number one hated team, even even to this day, as pathetic as they are now. Uh, I, I can't let sports stuff go, so I still hate them more than the Patriots. Brian Cox might not pop in 2022. Definitely not, but for an old fart like me, he does. Especially when his son, is he still on the Bills or he's been on the Bills at points in the recent years and yeah i don't know i don't think he's still there but uh but yeah you're not people nowadays probably you know new age fans don't know who brian cox is but he definitely definitely put the brady jersey on that'll that'll get them going but then you know for the uh geriatric crowd like myself you know you could put on a old dolphins jersey or mention don shula and it'll get the blood boiling milan lucas maybe yeah i like milan so uh so i like him not my blood everyone else is maybe or maybe Brett Hull, right? Is what he's the one that scored the goal with the uh, in the Stanley Cup, right? He's the one that scored right. the winner. Maybe Brett Hull. Crease. I still think Eichel pops. Eichel and Brady are your, are your choices. Uh, I, right now, no one's topping Eichel in terms of it being if you had the event in the, in the Buffalo Arena. But yeah, Brady too. But yeah, I think I think current events, Eichel's going to get the most venom. Or maybe Vasily Girov ending Joe Macy's career. <laughs> <laughs> I don't now, you're, so. now you're bringing me back to the old empire network right that's how i used to know about that's all right. those guys when i had the satellite dish we used to watch uh, empire all the time so well joe i've really enjoyed this um and uh love to have you on again to just to talk football maybe uh, as we get uh, into the season uh, we get some thoughts uh, you're you're good at this oh i appreciate that you're eloquent you know. <laughs> eloquent I don't, i've been called a lot of things i don't know if eloquent's been one of them but well, uh, add it to the list but i'll take it as a compliment and uh anytime you send up the bat signal i'll be there for sure beautiful well this yeah. is going to be the start of uh, not a start of a beautiful f but uh the continuation and the uh uh the uh, we're going to amplify this f we're gonna uh, we're gonna do more with this there's there's so much to be said for the start of a beautiful F, I tell you, you know, so, you know. Well, I appreciate this. Uh, let me give some more plugs. Follow Joe on Twitter at Joe underscore Lozito. One more time at Joe underscore Lozito, L-O-Z-I-T-O. Uh, buy his book on Amazon, The New York Subway Hero, My Battle with Evil and a Spree Killer. Uh, stop by and see him at Carnegie Hall. Buy some tickets to something. Say hello. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for whatever the hell reason, you got to go to a historic <laughs> venue. Hey, if you got time to go see Yankee Stadium, Wrigley Field, go see Carnegie Hall. Get some culture. Uh, but dress a little nicer than uh, we're dressed <laughs> here on this podcast. Uh, Just a little. Joe, thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great summer. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jonah. Really happy to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400.
and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Oh, 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 oh,